Amen. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Uh, my name is Ben. If you don't know who I am, hello. It's good to see you. It's good to be here with you. Um, man, a couple of things, a couple of things, a couple of things from those last two songs we sang that just are really resonating with me that I want to speak out into the room before we jump into the Word. Um, first of all, this, this idea that God made a way where there was no way in our lives. God made a way for us to be reconciled with him, uh, and in many ways to find our true selves in him. He did this through his son Jesus on the cross. And the song right before that, uh, there's no mountain that he won't climb up to, to come after us, including Mount Calvary, a mount called Golgotha, where he was crucified for our sins. And, and that, to me, when we were singing that, I just thought, man, it's the only thing that matters. Only thing that matters this morning. So anything that you have in your mind right now, things you're worried about, things, uh, things that you're, you're stressed on, trying to figure out in your, in your mind while you're sitting here, things maybe um, that, sins maybe, things that are just plaguing you, things you did yesterday or the day before, or things you're struggling with in your mind that make you feel unworthy to hear the word of God. Can we just press pause on all those things today and just understand that God has made a way for us to hear from him. I just feel that the Spirit wants to speak something to us this morning, and I may be the preacher today. We know that the Spirit is called the teacher, so the Spirit, I think, wants to speak something to your heart, so I, I hope that uh, this, this morning that you can just pause all the rest and listen to the Spirit. I think he has something for us. So, like I said, my name is Ben, and we're starting a new series today in the book of 1 John. We're going to spend five weeks on the five chapters of 1 John, and uh, we're calling this series, This is Love. Our tagline for this series is how God's love, wi love wins us, changes us, and defines us. How God's love wins us, changes us, and defines us. And uh, we're going to read this letter that this guy John wrote. Um, and uh, this, this guy John writes this letter near the end of his life. And it's a time in his life when he won't, stop, he just, he won't shut up about the love of God. He won't stop. He won't stop talking about it. And it's such a big deal for him that he writes this whole letter riffing on this theme of God's love and how it radically transforms our lives. And today, um, I loved having the seniors up here. One of the things I get to do at Eastridge is I'm, I'm a small group leader for the, for the high school youth group, and I get to have the junior and senior guys in my small group, along with Matt, who was up here earlier. Um, and it was great to have the seniors here. And today, uh, I, you know, graduating from high school is one of the most significant transitional things that can happen in a person's life. Think about it, right? It usually means in our culture, they're leaving something familiar, going to something unfamiliar. They're leaving probably the place they've lived their whole life and the people they've lived around and moving to a new space full of new influences and new ideas and new people, new communities. And it's just a huge transition. So today, I'm going to talk specifically to the graduating high school seniors. The rest of you are free to listen or not. I don't know. Maybe I've just alienated 90% of the people here. But I'm going to talk to the high school seniors because I think I really want to speak this message into this moment in your life when you are in the middle of a huge transition. So listen up, seniors. This is for you. I love that there are kids here too. You can listen as well. It's fine. So before we jump into the book of 1 John, I want to tell you a little story. I want to tell you a story about the guy who wrote it, a little story about John the Apostle as an old man. He's probably in his 70s or 80s when this story takes place, and the story comes to us through a fourth century historian named Eusebius. And Eusebius writes this story about what John was like in his old age. 
So John had been exiled to the island of Patmos for what he believed. He was in a time when there was lots of persecution against Christians. He had been exiled. Near the end of his life, he comes back from exile, and he starts checking in on the churches. At this point, John is the only one of the original disciples of Jesus still alive. And he goes and checks in on these different churches. And he goes to Ephesus, and when he's there, he meets a young man who has just come to faith in Jesus, just started to believe in Jesus. And he takes this guy under his wing, and he starts to teach him and disciple him. And when it's time for John to move on to another city to check on those other churches, he entrusts this young man to the pastor, one of the pastors in Ephesus. He says, take care of this young man. Disciple him, grow him in the faith, continue to build him up in the Lord, and I'll be back later. So he goes off and a couple years checking on these other churches, comes back to Ephesus, and he asks the pastor, where's this young man that I left you, left in your care? And the pastor begins to weep, and he says, he is dead. That is, he is dead to God. After you left, he started to get mixed up in the wrong crowd. He started to be around people that were really unsavory, and he ended up doing things. One little decision led to another decision, led to another decision until he finally ended up joining this gang, or as they called it, a band of robbers. But he joins a gang. He starts participating in all the activities of that gang. All the robbery, murder, rape, all those things. He starts to just dive in. In fact, he becomes so, uh, he starts to run so quickly in this direction that he becomes the leader of the gang. And when John comes back, they're saying not only has he joined this gang, he is now the leader of the gang. They live up in the mountains. Anyone who goes there gets killed we've lost him. And John, the old man, weeps, cries out, tears his clothes in grief, and then he says, bring me a horse. I love that. It's so epic. Bring me a horse and a guide to show me the way up into the mountains. So they do. This old man climbs on a horse and follows this this other guy up into the mountains. And of course, they get stopped by this gang and they they are going to rob them and maybe kill them. And John cries out, take me to your leader. So they do. They're like, that's weird. No one's ever asked for that before, but sure. We'll let our leader decide how we're going to kill you guys. So bring him to the leader. And when John comes before this young man, this young man sees him, drops his weapons, and runs. And John runs after him on foot. And by some miracle of the Holy Spirit, he catches him. And this young man uh, turns around and stops for a moment, and John cries out. These are the words of Eusebius. This is what John cries out to this young man. Why, my son, do you flee from me? Your own father, unarmed and aged, pity me, my son. Fear not, you still have hope of life. I will give account to to Christ for you. If need be, I will willingly endure your death as the Lord suffered death for us. For For you, I will give up my life. Stand believe Christ has sent me. And this young man falls to his knees, weeps, confesses his sins, and Eusebius says it's as if he was baptized a second time by his own tears. John is compelled by such ferocious, active, pursuing love that he puts his own life in danger to go rescue this young man who has come to know Jesus and then fallen away. And we might look at that and go, wow, what a good man, right? When we see people like that, we go, oh, they're just, a, they're just good people. They must just have a personality different than ours, a disposition different than ours. They must have just been born different. But you know what? John wasn't always like this. In the Gospels, these accounts of Jesus' life and his disciples with him, uh, we, we see a different kind of John. 
we see a John who was probably the youngest of the 12 who was uh, angry. He was really angry. He, he really uh, wanted Jesus to come and just like, you know, kick everybody out, blow the doors down, and take over, right? Well, there's a time when they were leaving a town after Jesus had preached there, and they, the people in that town didn't believe the message, and they didn't believe in Jesus, and they rejected him. So on the way out of that town, John goes, hey, Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven onto that town to consume it in flames? And Jesus is like, you still don't get it. John and his brother James come to Jesus secretly, privately, away from the other disciples and say, hey, we know you're going to be a king. We know you're going to have all the power. We know, we know that you are, you've come to just sort of like reign and rule. Can we be your second in command? Can we like rule over everyone else? Can we just get a little bit of your power for, for ourselves? And Jesus says, no, no, you don't understand. See, when John first begins following Jesus, he's a hothead. He's not, he's not really into this whole love your neighbor as yourself thing. He's like, you're with us or you're against us. If you're against us, you will die, right? Where, but then something radically changes to where when he's an old man writing this letter, he's willing to go chase after someone and express to them the love of God and say, I will die for you if it brings you back to Jesus. In fact, this same time, right before he wrote the letter of 1 John, he had written the Gospel of John, which is one of our accounts of Jesus' life, and he had named himself in that Gospel. He doesn't call himself John. He calls himself, anyone know? The disciple Jesus loved. His whole being becomes defined by the love of God for him. Radical transformation of a person. And I'm interested in knowing how that happened, because if I'm honest, I don't have that kind of love for people. I'm not totally consumed, changed, and defined by the love of God for me. In the, uh, to the extent I would like. And I'm curious, how did that happen to John? And I think we get clues in John chapter 1. Today we sort of get an overview. The next few weeks we get a little more nuts and bolts practical how it actually works. But John, in 1 John, is, is laying out sort of his manifesto of what it means to live and follow Jesus. And this letter, he writes, isn't to a specific church for specific issues. It's sort of meant to be passed around to different churches. It's sort of an open letter. And it reads kind of like almost a journal entry. Like we're getting just a glimpse inside John. You can imagine John near the end of his life. He's in his 90s. And he's just writing out, here's what I've learned about what it means to live life after Jesus and with Jesus. And it also doesn't follow a linear framework. It's not a logical argument. Some of the letters of Paul are like, this thought leads to this thought leads to this thought, which leads to my main point. And they're really easy to preach. This isn't like that. This one is, uh, is a little more cyclical. And what I mean by that is it uses a, an ancient tool of rhetoric that was common in this day called amplification, which basically means John has big ideas, three main ideas, and he keeps circling back to them. So imagine a spiral. Everyone imagining a spiral? And you're traveling on that spiral from the outside towards the middle. And you keep passing over the same ground again and again and again and again, but each time getting closer and closer to the heart. And so John is going to introduce us to his themes in chapter 1 and then continue to play them out getting closer and closer to the heart. His main themes are the, these. Ready? The main themes of 1 John. Life. What does it mean to be really alive? Life. Light. What does it mean that God is light and that we live in his light? And then especially the big one, the one it's known for, love. What does it mean that God's love wins us, 
changes us, and defines us. We're going to look at all three briefly today and then sort of unpack them as we keep going. So we're in John chapter 1, verse 1. Sorry, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. Very different. It says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. That which was from the beginning. He's talking about God, right? The eternal one, the cosmic being, the source of all life. And, and it's really interesting the way he does this. He immediately says, yes, God is this great created or create, creator being that has created all things. And, and as the Apostle Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. He's this, he's this, this sort of ethereal thing that God is spirit, right? God is the eternal one who was from the beginning, or as, as John calls it in a different book he wrote, he calls it the word, the eternal word. And then John says, this God, we've heard, seen, and touched him. That which we have heard, which our eyes have seen, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. What he's saying is, I want to tell you about God, but not just about what I think or about what I've checked off on my doctrinal statement about what I believe about God. I want to talk to you about the God that I have heard, touched, seen. And I want to proclaim to you everything I have experienced concerning the word of life. Do you want life that is really life? He's saying, I've got some news for you, and it's experiential knowledge. It's not knowledge about God, it's knowledge of God. Is there a time and a place to refine our our intellect and our doctrine? Absolutely. But that's not what John is interested in here. What John is most interested in, that's sort of part of it, but what he's most interested in is that we have an experiential knowledge of knowing God personally. And that this great God being, that which was from the beginning, the eternal word, becomes something and someone that we've tasted, touched, known, talked to. That's what he's interested in. So he says, this isn't just some knowledge. This is experience that I want to communicate to you. And I want to help you have the same experience with God. Verse 2, the life appeared. This life I'm talking about, this word of life, it appeared to us. And we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So he's saying, I, I, I'm trying to tell you that we saw and experienced life, a different kind of life. He calls it eternal life. Now, if you've been around the church at all for any number of years, if you've been around the church as a kid and maybe you just started coming back, if you've ever read the Bible, whatever, you probably have heard this, this, uh, this term, eternal life. Think about, just for a moment in your own mind, what, what do you think of when you think of eternal life? Many of us probably think of heaven, right? Eternal life is something that begins once I die and I'm with God. In fact, we, say, we have phrases like this side of eternity, right? Because eternity starts after I die. So this side of eternity, right? Eternal life is something in the future for us, for the believer. It's our life with God into eternity after we die. But John and the other apostles, and yes, even for Jesus, eternal life was less about a quantity of life. It was about that, right? Quantity, as in never-ending, infinite life. It was less about a quantity of life and more about a quality of life or a particular kind of life. And John wants us to understand that Jesus, the Word of God that has appeared to us, 
is offering a different kind of life. In fact, it's such a kind of life that it outlasts death. Jesus was on about this all the time, all the time. He says, those who believe in me will live even though they die. Jesus sees uh, Lazarus, his dear friend, die, and he says, "Ah, no, no, I am the resurrection and the life. He will live. Jesus himself is killed, put in the tomb for three days, comes back to life. Why? Because he is the embodiment of eternal life, that kind of life that starts now, a new kind of life that exists and survives everything, even survives death. John is interested not just in the quantity of our life after we die. He's concerned in the quality, the type, the kind of living we're doing now. When John talks about life, he's not just talking about biology, and he's not just talking about eternity. He is talking about the way we live, the actual essence of our being right here and right now. He wants us to live in a new way, to live as if heaven has already come, to live as if God is already king, to live as if the victory has already been won by Jesus because it has. And so he says, This is what I'm all about here, is eternal life. It has appeared, I've touched it, I've tasted it. Uh, This is all about what we have seen and experienced. And then he goes on in verse three, we proclaim to you that uh, what we have seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us, our fellowship, uh, and, and our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, and we write this to make our joy complete. So again, he says, I'm telling you, notice the first three verses, how many times he says seen and heard, seen and heard, seen and heard, seen and heard, touched, seen and heard, seen and heard right? Over and over. He's talking about, this is something I've experienced, seen, and heard. And this is so valuable for us because it's so easy to think that all God cares about is what's on our doctrinal statement. Seniors who just graduated, hear me on this. The time you've spent in youth groups, time you've spent in small groups on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, has been less about trying to make sure you believe the right things And your leaders have been more concerned about making sure you experience this God and have an intimate, seen and heard relationship experience with him. That is the essential thing because everything else, our theology, our doctrine, it all flows from that foundation. Have you heard, have you seen, have you experienced? That's what God wants to do in you. And he says, when you do that, you'll have fellowship with us and with God and our joy will become complete. What is that, what is that about? Make our joy complete. Well, John is actually quoting something. He's quoting himself, which is super classy, John. He's quoting, no, he's quoting something that he, he wrote down in the book of John, the gospel of John, that Jesus actually said. In fact, if you want to know all of what John is about to say in this whole book, go back to the gospel of John and read John 14, 15, 16, and 17. Those four chapters are basically all just Jesus talking, and they get repeated a ton in this book of 1 John. So go back to John with me, John chapter 15. Jesus says this. I have told you this, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Cool. Jesus is talking about complete joy. He says, I have told you this. What is this? Well, he's just spent the beginning part of John chapter 15, Jesus has, talking about a famous passage that says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. I want you to remain in me as I am in the Father, so remain in me. And you remain in my love, 
and we will remain in you. He talks about remaining, staying connected, having this intimate daily communication relationship with God, remaining connected to the source, to the vine. And he says, if you do this, guess what will happen? Your joy, your fellowship with one another and with me will make your joy complete. This word complete just basically means lacking nothing. Imagine this. Imagine a person who lived with complete joy. No cracks or breaks or holes in it. Nothing going, yeah, but, yeah, but that's not right. Yeah, but that's not good. Yeah, but that thing's not, yeah, but you should probably be worried and frustrated about that. You should probably be bummed out about that. You should probably, you should probably get really in your head about that. What would it be like to meet a person who had complete joy? That is, I think, what John is after teaching us how to be people who have complete joy in our fellowship with God and his son, Jesus Christ. So then he goes on in verse 5 of 1 John 1. This is the message that we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. So he's about to spell out the gospel. He's about to spell out what it means to follow and believe in Jesus. And he begins with, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. See, John lived in a time when there was a lot of darkness. He was at the latter end of the Roman Empire. Things were falling, out, falling down around his ears. If you know anything about that time in history, seniors, if you've taken the Western Civilization class, right, we know that that time in Roman history was a terrible time to be alive. People were, just, everything was being destroyed. Social order was being destroyed. People were living however they wanted to live and it was just like destroying the social fabric. Things were falling down around their ears. People were attacking. People were fighting. People who followed Jesus were being murdered left and right for what they believed, officially by the state murdered. It was a terrible, terrible time to be alive. There was a lot of darkness. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I look around in this world, I think, wow, there's so much darkness. I have so many friends, people I really care about who are just getting lost and caught up in the darkness and just getting chewed up and spit out by really messed up choices that the world says, you should make that choice. And they say, I guess I'll make this choice and it destroys their life. I have so many friends that I see them just lost in a sea of anxiety and depression, just, just caught up, just totally trapped by it. I think, wow, this world, there's a lot of darkness and people are being trapped and destroyed by this darkness. The first thing John wants you to know is, while the world may be full of darkness, God is light. God is light. It, he shines light into the deepest corners, the darkest corners. Wherever you find yourself, whatever deep, dark corner of darkness or whatever just sort of semi-shadow you find yourself in. I don't know what your life is like. I don't know where you come from. Maybe you are deep, deep in the, in the pit of darkness, deep down in the corner where no light has found you. Or maybe you're just sort of living in the shadows a little bit. I don't know. But wherever you are, God wants to shine his light upon you. He wants not only to shine it so that you, it reveals your situation, which, by the way, that's the first mercy of God. That's the first thing he'll do if he loves you, is he'll show you the truth of your situation. 
And he wants to show you that, but he also wants to make it so you can see the way out without the light. How can you see the way out, right? He wants to shine on your situation so that you can just follow the light and come towards him and approach his light. So John is saying, God is light. In him there is no darkness. You know, John has talked about this theme before. Again, in the book of John, which he had written before this, which all these church people had read uh, that he's writing to, they had all read the gospel of John. And John starts his gospel out in John chapter 1, it starts out this way. In him, that is in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light that, comes into, that, that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. John views the coming of Jesus not as the coming of some moral teacher or not as some, some little insignificant thing that happened thousands of years ago. John views the coming of Jesus like the turning on of a switch in a pitch black room. John views it like suddenly there was darkness, boom, there is light. You can try to hide in the shadowy corners, but sooner or later, the light's going to get you. And John says that's what it's like to turn to God. It's like turning to the light. It's like stepping out of a dark room into the light of day. And he wants us to understand that it's not so much about us and finding the light in ourselves and getting rid of the darkness in ourselves. And what we're, it's not so much about who we are and what we can do. It's about who he is. Who is he? He is light. Get close to him and he will dispel the darkness in your life completely. That's what he is about. And that's where John begins his explanation of the gospel. So going back to 1 John chapter 1, the next verse, verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. He's saying if God is light and we claim that we have fellowship with him, then our lives become lives of light. There's light. There's complete joy or, joy, or at least joy that's on the way to being complete. There's not these dark, shadowy corners. We clean those out. We let God's light into all those little places. We don't continue to stumble around going, I can't find the way out, I can't find the way out, because we have found the way out. His name is Jesus, and he is light. And so John says, don't deceive yourself. That's a big theme for John in this chapter, by the way. Don't deceive yourself. Admit where you are. Understand, right, where you are. And understand who he is. And then he goes on in verse 7. And this is, I think, the high point of the chapter. This is, this is like the, the essence of the gospel for John right here. He says, but, so if we, if we claim that we have fellowship with him, when we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So John is saying, if we walk in darkness, how could we ever know the light? But if we walk in the light, think about that, walking in the light. I can see where I'm going. I can get warmth from this light, so I'm not cold, not lonely. I can continually be sure of the path ahead. I'm comforted by the light. The light shows me what's going on with me. Oh, I can see if I'm scraped and bleeding. I can see what, what needs, to, I can see myself better. The light shows me the world around me better. Sees, it shows me when somebody's in trouble and I need to go help. I'm just walking in the light as he is in the light. And it says when we do that, we have fellowship with one another. 
There's an image here that's really helpful for me. In the fourth century, there's this group of people called the Desert Fathers. This is fun. Desert Fathers. Some of you are like, why are we going to the fourth century again? Okay. The Desert Fathers were the first Christian monks, basically. And they saw the world around them just collapsing and people getting destroyed by the darkness of the world. And they said, what what we want to do to stay pure and stay true to the gospel and what we feel called to do is to go out into the desert, live in caves. Sounds like a fun afternoon, right? Live in caves and then pray Pray that God saves some people from this world. And then people would just flock to them. People would flock to them from the cities and just say, we need help. We need, this. We need salvation. Help us. How can we find Jesus? And the desert fathers who lived in these caves in these communities, they viewed themselves, they had this picture that they would use. God is light and he's at the center. And we are all on the perimeter around him trying to get deeper and deeper into the light and live more and more in the light. And as we approach this light, what happens to our relationship to each other? We also get closer to one another, right? As, we, as our circle collapses and goes deeper into the center towards the heart of God, we also get closer to one another. So for John, having fellowship with God and having fellowship with other people who are walking in the light are inextricably linked They're absolutely together. They're really important. Seniors, I want to tell you this. You need your faith community. You need your faith community. A lot of times, my friends, when we were going off to college or leaving college and going into our lives, thought, you know, if this Jesus stuff is true, it'll just always, I'll always believe it. And it will, if it's true, I don't need to cultivate that faith. And you know what, if it's true, it can really just be about me and Jesus and nothing else really matters. According to the Bible, according to what John teaches here, according to what Jesus has taught us, that doesn't actually happen. We don't approach God in isolation. You need your faith community. If you're going to another state for college, find one there. Call your people here. You need your faith community as you approach God. And so what John says is, when we approach the light, when we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. Or some translations say, from every sin. Notice this. John says, we're in the light. Just by God's sheer grace, we're in the light. Next, we also have fellowship with those who are in the light with us. Third, we're going to deal with the sin problem. So often in my life, I have wanted to deal with the sin problem before I approach the light. Doesn't work. How does the sin problem in our life get taken care of? By walking in the light. I remember a season of my life where God was just, like I said, first mercy of God, the first thing he's going to do if he loves you is to show you the truth of your situation. I remember a season of my life where God was just revealing to me how broken and sinful my life actually was. He was revealing to me all the things that were causing harm to myself and others. He was showing me all the different ways that my thinking was messed up and that it was influencing my actions to cause harm. And I was in, I, I was in actual distress despair. But it was a healthy despair, a despair of ever being able to get it right. And I would wake up in the mornings and be like, I can't today. I can't do it today. I can't be good enough today. I can't deserve the light today. I just can't do it. And I remember this very specific day when the Lord spoke to me and he just said, you know what? That's kind of the point. And I don't want you to get up today and think, I'm going to do better. I want you to get up today and say, I'm going to walk through this day in the light. I'm going to walk through this day with God. 
What would it be like if you got up in the morning and you rolled out of bed with God? And you went took a shower with God? And you went and ate your breakfast with God? You got on the school bus with God. You went to your first class with God. And you turned in your homework with God. And you talked to your teachers with God. And you went to your next class and your next class and your next class with God. And in passing time in the hallways, you were with God. And at lunch, you were with God. And in your your final classes, you were with God. And at soccer practice, you were with God. When you got home and saw your parents and you were frustrated, you were still with God. And then you had homework and dinner and you were still with God in all those times. And you finally got to sleep after some social media that you did with God. And then you went to bed with God, and he was present with you in all of these things. What would your life look like? You probably wouldn't be as tempted to yell at your parents or lie to your teacher about your homework. You probably would be tempted to do those things, but being with God would give you the power and the light to be able to not do them. See, this is so essential. So often we think of the blood of Jesus as just something that affects the mistakes we made yesterday. Oh, I made all these mistakes yesterday. Thank goodness for the blood of Jesus. That is true, right? It covers all of our mistakes in the past. But you know what? Jesus didn't just pour out blood and then stay dead to cover our sins. Jesus rose from the dead to break the power of sin, which means this. We don't have to do it anymore, which means if we're staying connected to him and not just returning to him every time I messed up, sorry, I did it again. I'll try better tomorrow. See you later. What if the blood of Jesus and his work on the cross for us is not just our get out of hell free card. What if it's our I don't have to do that anymore card. And I can walk in freedom card. And sin has no hold on me card. What if it's that instead? Seniors, God is not waiting for you to get all A's on your report card. God doesn't care about your report card. It might be, your parents do. (laughs) He's not waiting for you to get all A's on your spiritual report card. He's saying, come here, walk in the light. Don't just live for me, live with me. And in that place, if we are in the light, you know what happens to those deep, dark crevices in our lives that are full of cobwebs in the corners? You know what happens to those? The light shines on them and they get cleared away, cleaned out. The closet we always kept locked gets opened up and finally cleaned out. Stay connected to the light. Don't try to be good. Stay connected to the light. Stay walking in the light. Don't try to be enough. Stay walking in the light. For John, that is the gospel. The light has come. Will you let it shine on you? And in that place, with fellowship with God and with one another, guess what? Finally, there is power to deal with the sin problem. Because he cares about that too. But he also knows that there was no way for you to deal with that. So he made a way for you to deal with that. God is real good at making a way where there is no way. That's what he's all about. And he goes on in verse 8, he says, So if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He's like, guys, don't pretend your report card is all A's. It's not. Get honest. Don't deceive yourself. 
Get honest about where you're at. Verse 9, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Does God care about righteous living? Absolutely. But he does it through his power, not ours. He purifies. Notice that word purify. It's come up twice. A couple verses previous and now again here in verse 9. Purifies us. He actually does the cleaning. God does the cleaning by his spirit. All we need to do is continually approach him and open ourselves to him. God, whatever you want to do in me, do it. God, keep me connected to you today. God, I'm going to choose to think about you. Will you help remind me to think about you on all these little moments in my day? God, I want to stay open to you. Will you clean out the places that I have kept in darkness? Will you shine your light all through my life? And he is the one who purifies, purifies from every kind, or as it says, all unrighteousness. If we do what? Confess our sins. If we just admit it. Do you know what confess actually means? Literally, it means to just agree with God. Just say, yeah, 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 you were right. That was wrong. Yeah, you're right. This way I'm thinking, feeling, acting is messed up. Yeah, God, you're right. I am actually not good enough on my own. And every day, y'all, confession is the greatest thing that ever happened to you. It's the greatest thing that ever happened to you. We have a God who does not say, go away when we mess up. We have a God who says, come here and tell me about it. And we're going to purify. We're going to get it right. We're going to clean out those cobwebs. It's going to be okay if you come here and tell me about it. God gives us the opportunity to confess. It is one of the greatest gifts that he is giving you. I saw something on social media this week. Uh, Somebody I follow who's a preacher in England, he posted this very simple graphic, and it was a definition of religion and a definition of sonship or like viewing yourself as a child of God. The definition of religion, he says, he says, religion sounds like this. I messed up. Dad's going to kill me. Sonship sounds like this. I messed up. I need to call dad. Confess. Tell God. And you know what? When we do that, we are also invited. We have this gift of being able to tell our brothers and sisters in Christ, I messed up in this way. I'm struggling in this way. You know why? Because we're all doing it. We're all needing it. We're all approaching God together. None of us are full. All of our cobwebs are being cleared out. We all have those dark corners in our lives. And we have this incredible gift where God doesn't tell us to go away. He says, come here and tell me about it. And our brothers and sisters in Christ don't say, go away. They say, come here and tell me about it. Confess your sins. Get honest with God. You know what? If you haven't had an experience of Jesus, just like you, you, you haven't sensed God's presence, you don't even know if he's listening, you, don't even, you haven't heard him talking to you, there are many reasons that could be. One of those reasons could be, I'm not saying it is, but it could be that you are still trying to be good enough before you approach the light. That could be the reason, I don't know, but it could be. And what would happen if, if this afternoon you got home and you just got in a quiet room and you got down on your knees, physically down on your knees, and you said, God... This is where I'm actually at. These are the things that are actually happening inside me. This is the actual state of my soul. What can you do about it? What would happen? I'm guessing that you would have an experience of the love of Jesus, and he would begin to purify, to clean out those cobwebs, and help you live in the light. And I encourage you if, that, if that's your situation where you're just, why, why, not, why am I not hearing from God? Why am I not having this relational experience with God? 
I would encourage you to give that a try. See what he does. Give God a chance to move in your life instead of just to review your spiritual report card. Give him a chance to move and to purify. And then in verse 10, he just clarifies this statement. He says, so if we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. He's like, you guys, yes, we're walking in the light, but yes, we also still have need to confess We still have sin in our lives. God's not expecting all A's on our report card. What he's expecting is to bring him our mistakes and say, help me do better. Help me purify. Help me. John wants us to really understand that this is how God works. That this is is what it really means to have a relationship with God and not just a belief. Check the box in God. And seniors, uh, you you guys are going to be leaving some communities that you're a part of now where maybe it's been easy to be a follower of Jesus. Maybe when you go to youth group, it feels like, oh yeah, everyone's doing this. This is okay to be a follower of Jesus. And you might find that your beliefs get challenged. That's okay. Your beliefs can be challenged if you have a dynamic, real, daily relationship with Jesus. I've seen so many people fall away from the Lord, and it's not because, they, it's, it's not because somebody argued with their beliefs. That's not why they decide to abandon Jesus. It's because they didn't have a connection, a real I've tasted, seen, touched, heard. My experience tells me that he is still here and this is true. And if we haven't had this experience with him where he is cleansing us, purifying us, where we're confessing and falling on him, where we're calling him when we messed up, where we're walking daily in the light, if we haven't had that experience, it becomes real easy to forget why we're believing in the first place. Have you noticed that you can't argue anyone into a new opinion? Have you ever had anyone tell you their opinion and you try to like reason with them? Do they ever leave changing their mind? Probably not. But what happens if somebody has an experience? Their mind gets changed like that. Have an experience of Jesus every day. Walk in the light. Talk to him. Confess your sins. Invite him to purify you. That sort of dynamic relationship is what sustains you and actually enables you to walk in righteousness. So then John kind of lands the plane at the very beginning of chapter 2. We're going to steal from next week a little bit, just a couple verses in chapter 2, because it's the same thought. So he says, my dear children, I'm writing all of this to you so that you do not sin. But, but, see John cares about sin, so does God. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, who's not just some Joe Schmo. You know who it is? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. What John is saying is you are covered by Jesus, completely covered by him. Yes, I want you to walk in such a way that you don't sin, but if you do sin, don't abandon, don't run away from God until you get it right. Come closer to God. If you, if you sin, it's because you're not yet deep enough into the heart of God. Because when you're really there and the atoning blood of Christ is working out in your life, the appeal or sin loses its appeal. And we start to not want to live that way. And we start to grow, hear this, we start to grow in freedom. We start to grow as Christians in freedom, not in legalistic moral code. I'm going to do better tomorrow and then I'll go show God my report card. 
That sort of a day-in, day-out, atoning relationship, purifying relationship with Jesus is the only thing that can sustain us through. And you know what? It's the only thing that can make our joy complete. Have you ever met a person who's just rooted and established in the love of Jesus? Maybe, not, maybe you actually didn't know that. Maybe you just met a person who seemed to have a complete, whole joy that lacked nothing. John is saying this is how we approach that kind of life, the kind of life that is so strong it survives everything, even death, that eternal kind of life. We approach it through having this day-in, day-out, renewing, purifying relationship with God's Son, Jesus Christ. You know, there's, there was a long period of time in my life where I, I really struggled to hear these words. I really struggled to listen to this part of the Scriptures. I, 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 there was a time in my life, because I, I, God was, like I said, showing me how serious sin can be and how, how broken and messed up it was. I didn't want to let myself off the hook. And I felt like if I, if I really trusted the love of Jesus, then I was letting myself off the hook. This isn't about license to sin. This isn't about live however you want. This is about your only hope for living a new kind of life is to establish your life completely, firmly, and unalterably on the foundation of Jesus' atoning love for you and for me. That is the only way to live the eternal kind of life. Do you want that life? Do you want your actual life right now to look like what it's going to like in eternity? Then the only way to do it is to begin with Jesus' sacrifice of love. He's covered me. I can confess to God and to others, and he can purify me. He is the one who must do it. Jesus' love is not just to cover our past. It is to enable us and give us power in our present. We have to establish our life on this. And I want to tell you that in this time in my life when I was just so overwhelmed with how sinful my heart could be and so resistant to anything that felt like it was going to let me off the hook, when I was finally able to hear God's own words and approach and establish my life on the foundation of his love poured out on the cross and his love that compelled him to rise again to break its power, when I finally could establish my life there, you know what happened? I started to be able to walk more righteously. And I started to enjoy my life a little more. <laughs> I started to enjoy God a little more and my fellow believers a little more. And the shackles of sin began to fall off around my feet. That can only happen if we begin at this place of God's love. So the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at what does it mean to approach this love of God? What does it mean to walk in the light? What does it mean to let the light of life really shine on us and clear out the dark corners of our lives? And to establish our life of faith, not on performance or perfection, but on love. Because what we're going to find out uh, in just a couple of weeks when we keep reading through 1 John is that God's love for us automatically, when we receive it and really establish ourselves on it, automatically kicks off this flame in us, this all-consuming fire of love for him in response. So this morning as we close in worship, I'm just going to pray here and we're going to close in worship. I encourage you to just, if this is something you want from the Lord, if you want to have a love that is just so established on his love that there becomes this unquenchable fire in you of love for him in response and living for him in response, and you want to live and walk in the light of God, if that's something you want, just tell him. Just tell him where you are 
and what you want. And I'll bet you that you will be surprised at how he shows up, because he will. I'm going to pray, and then we'll uh, continue in worship. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the fact that, um, uh, that we don't have to clean ourselves up before we come into your light, but that we can come into your light, and you can reveal the places where we need help, and then you do it. You purify us. Help us to focus less on being good enough and more on being open to you, because you are enough. Lord, I ask that our lives would be lives that are established on your love and that this complete joy, this full joy would begin to be grown in us so that people look at us and they see us as people who are free, who are living righteous lives, and who have a joy like none other, and that those people are compelled to then have fellowship with us in you. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you that this is, thank you that this is the key. Thank you that the, the foundational key of our faith is not something we can do but it's about trusting who you are and what you can do. We love you, Lord. Do a powerful work in our hearts. In your name, amen.